There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 117 with Damien Barbala. You can find him DamienBarbala.com, D-A-M-I-A-N, Damien Barbala, B-A-R-B-E-L-E-R.com. Uh, thank you for being here. If you're new, Welcome. Thank you so much for all your patience and letting me uh, have a few weeks to get settled in Brisbane and actually have a holiday. There's so much to tell you about. So much to tell you about. I'm sitting right now in a uh, hotel room in North Adelaide. Um, it's like a country comfort. Uh, I'm pretty sure like in 1982, this place was the business. Um, now they've yet to uh, kind of renovate it, I think, but uh, still... Pretty awesome. You can tell a place is old when it's still got a spot for where the VHS place used, thing used to be and a spot for the phone book. Um, two things that uh, if you're listening and you're under 25, you don't know what those two things are. Anyway, um, I'm here because I've just watched Bridie O'Donnell, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, win, win, um, achieve a goal that she set for herself over a year ago to beat the world one-hour cycling record for women, the UCI cycling record. Uh, it's set on a velodrome. It's a single-speed bicycle. Um, it's a very stringent set of circumstances. And uh, tonight, about an hour and a half ago, I watched her smash it. She didn't just beat it. She smashed it. And it was absolutely Fantastic. I, I am still speechless. I'm speechless that it happened. She's been so completely focused, so dedicated, so driven, uh, so singularly pushing towards this evening for so long. I am just completely inspired by her ability to 
just access this laser in her brain that she can just point at something and just drill down and just explodes. If you haven't listened to Dr. Brody O'Donnell's um, podcast, it's a two-parter. It's a biggie. Uh, episode 64 and 65 of the show that you can find at osherginsberg.com. I don't think it's on the iTunes feed because iTunes only keeps the last 50, um, but you can find it at osherginsberg.com. Uh, scroll down the page. It's um, uh, about a year ago. Uh, but you'll hear the fierce focus that she exhibited tonight in her voice. And I, mate, it's just amazing watching her tonight, watching her, her boyfriend, Nick, the support that he gave her. Um, he was a part of her training. He was a part of her team and her entire team. She had about 12 people working with her. Um, I think it was about that. With uh, And when you bring in, you know, mechanics and, and physiology coaches and all kinds of things. She just did such a fantastic job. The place was packed. It was so good to see. But um, go back and listen to those episodes and then try to imagine this woman um, just achieving the sort of things that she says to achieve, she achieves. And I think that's that's the big thing that I'm taking away from tonight. I'm just trying to bask in the gravity of what I've just seen is that she said she's going to do it. She did everything that you're supposed to do to get ready for something like that. And then she just relied on all those things and then she did it. And there's extraordinary power in realizing that those things are possible, that you can say you're going to do something. If you put the hard work in, in that direction, I was talking to her the other night on the phone and I, and, and I told her, look, you know, no matter what happens, you have already reaped all of the benefits from this journey. The moment you cross the finish line is just a single frame of a 30 frame a second video, but Everything that you've learned from the preparation and everything you learn and how you either succeed or fail will be an extraordinary competition to your, a com- contribution to your life. And yeah, I'm flabbergasted. Anyway, been a big week. Uh, <laughs> it's big. Been a big week. I uh, I'm loving being on radio in Brisbane. If you're uh, unaware, I'm doing breakfast radio in Brisbane this year, and I'm having such a fantastic time. And uh, we podcast the show, so you can find it, uh, Stav, Abby, and Osher, uh, S-T-A-V, A-B-B-Y, and my name. You can find it in iTunes. It's there. It's fun. I'd love to know your thoughts. So we should get on to my guest today, because I was thinking, how are you going to kick off the year? How are you going to kick off 2016? I think you should kick it off with not only realizing that anything is possible, as Dr. Bridie showed us tonight, but also that when you're thinking of things you might want to do, there's ways that you can stimulate your creativity so you can think of more extraordinary things that you might want to do. And in this year, as you know, things get more intense, as our world keeps spinning through space with all of us on it, um, you might need to come up with some creative solutions to some problems. You might need to have a bit of a creative way to work around something that's otherwise stopping you from moving or stopping your community from moving or stopping your family from moving. Um, and so I've got Damien Barbler on. Let me tell you about him. Damien Barbler is an award-winning composer who I actually grew up with in Brisbane, and he now lives with his family in Sydney, and you can find him. He's actually got two websites. The other one's barbler.com, not too many Bs, not too many Ls, barbler.com. Damien's musical compositions have been commissioned and performed in all parts of the world. His music is at the same time quite avant-garde, but also extraordinarily accessible. 
He's got a PhD from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. He regularly teaches both young and old the art of composition and is indeed a man that can inspire his students to achievements that they could never have dreamed possible. And I know this because he used to teach me. He used to teach me how to sing. He's one of the smartest, most creative people I know. So I got him over to my place to talk about creativity because we could all use some. Whether we're writing a book, a blog post, a dinner menu, uh, figuring out how we're going to be creative to maintain and nourish our relationship, nurturing and flexing that creative muscle is important. And today, Damien talks about just that. Now, he actually gives some pretty good takeaways in this show. And I certainly hope that the tools and techniques and indeed the practice that he talks about resonate with you and that you can apply what he has to offer to your life and your passion and your purpose. So uh, come to my house about an hour after a hurricane hit Sydney. A fucking hurricane hit Sydney. Just let that sink in. All right. Can we just get our shit together with climate change action, please? Please? I mean... The fancy people with the fancy houses at fancy suburbs like Palm Beach, they're really close to the waterline. They're going to be pissed off if their place goes underwater. Sort it out. How much balcony furniture do they have to lose before they figure out they're going to use their influence on governments to start to change things around here? They live here in this world as well, don't they? Unless they have a secret world that we don't know about, then we're fucked. Anyway, <laughs> sorry to bring you down. Oh, yeah, I got engaged since you saw me last. I'll tell you about that at the end of the show. Enjoy a fantastic hour with Damien. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm rolling. So you've got to get right up on the way. It's a roadie. It's okay. a roadie procaster. So you get right up on that. Um, thanks for coming, Damien. Hey, it's very nice. And I like this stormy view as well. It's uh, We're recording this on a Wednesday? Yes. And a, a storm with some potency just rolled through and... Um, clearly lawn furniture had been very mad to it in the past because it went, here you go, buddy, and it's strewn lawn furniture all across my street. Yeah, I hopped in my car and driving this direction, I thought, what am I doing? Because it just <laughs> looked like Armageddon and well, I was driving straight at it. We both grew up in Brisbane and I remember this was just like a regular and afternoonly occurrence. Exactly. I was slightly disappointed I got no hail. Well, there was hail out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. But, yeah, when uh, – you mentioned uh, listening on the radio, the same thing happens that happens in Los Angeles. The moment a slight bit of damp hits the air, people freak out. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just crazy. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but, mate, I'm, gla- I'm glad you could come um, because I really wanted to get you on to talk about your, yeah, it's Christmas present wrapping time. So hang on. That's the kids' little camera. It's little Fuji Instax. Yes, I've got, I've got one. They're really good. Because uh, I looked at one for me. Yeah, they're really good. I've got another one too. Yeah. Um, and I'll take your photo later on a big old Polaroid with that film right there. Oh, okay. That's yeah. cool. Man. Yeah. Love it. Um, but, uh, yeah, hi. Hi. I've known you since 1988. I think that's when I first got to know you. Could that be right? Yeah, I was in grade nine. Yeah. yeah. I left school in 89, so it might have been a bit earlier than that. It was around then. I started in 87. Oh, really? Yeah. I do know there was a lot of fluoro shoelaces going on. Yeah. And a lot of shoulder pads on women. Yeah, that's what was happening. So that's, you know, it doesn't matter what year exactly, so long as you know that was the context. But you were a really important person in my life because I'd never heard Led Zeppelin before before (laughs) I met you. 
Yeah, um, half of my students now haven't heard of Led Zeppelin either. It was a really excellent phase. Yeah. We, it was retro. It was, it was, as far as I could, I was concerned, like the first retro movement in our lives. Yeah. Um, and we just thought, wow, you can do this stuff. It was just wonderful. Yeah, the first person to play me a Led Zeppelin record was you. The first person to play me a Who record mm-hmm. was you. Um. There must have been some Pink Floyd in there. Yeah, too. you you got me into Pink Floyd. In fact, the first band I was ever in was with you, mm. and we were playing. You, we, I think one of our we played "Wish You Were Here" mm-hmm. because you know ballads. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that the other day. Actually, I went to a friend's place. You know how people have these ludicrously beautiful um, valve amplifiers with stereos now. You know, they're kind of silver and yeah. so that you know that they're valve amplifiers, they have the valves sticking up out the top of them in front oh, of you, man. you know, and these massive coils and everything's on display. And, of course, the guy wanted to play me Dark Side of the Moon like I'd never heard it before. And it's really a bit impolite to say, dude, really, <laughs> I have heard of the Floyd, you know. <laughs> but it had been a long time. Since I'd heard that stuff, and I just couldn't believe how long Shine On You Crazy Diamond is. And I said to someone, I just don't hear stuff like that today that's quite that ambitious and just pure length. Yeah, you don't get to write uh, an album where how many songs are on the first side? One. Yeah. (laughs) And someone was saying, oh, no, I know such and such. They do really long tracks. But I'm thinking... I don't know, like it's not the kind of months in the studio style invention that was going on there. Yeah. And in a way, um, it's sounding like grumpy old man, isn't it? But in a way, having easy access to um, plugins, especially if you torrent like a lot of my students do, means that really you can make pretty good sounding stuff really quickly and easily, which means that a lot of stuff is not really stunning in the way that it was when it was more hard won. Right. You know, when the creative process is longer, people think it, the creative process needs to be quicker and more efficient, but actually usually that just gets you something fairly mediocre. In fact, you should go for longer. You should make your process longer in order to get something better. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. It's good just to, for someone to go, uh, like this person has a really long track, do they or have they just copy and pasted a lot yeah. and then given you the same melody line in a different instrument with a different MIDI uh, instrument or, yeah. you know, they've just put the verse part and the chorus part, the verse part with the chorus drum beat as an alteration. Yeah, and they've got a Zoom, which is an okay recording device hey, careful, buddy. You're audio. Being reco- you're being recorded no, no. on a Zoom right now. Brilliant for <laughs> this sort of thing, but okay for studios. And then they record their cat meowing and then they sample it down and they reverse it and they do some sort of corruption process to it and that, that makes a sample for the song. Yeah. And then it goes on SoundCloud where it's um, um, compressed down again. Um. Yeah, so there's all these little tiny compromises going. But then again, there's this wonderful kind of democracy about making, you know, electronic dance music now. Pretty much you can make something or you can just make an interesting sound and whack it on SoundCloud and people go, hey, that's cool, man, and they like it, you know. And actually that's quite nice. You're not beholden to 
a uh, major distribution label in order to make your stuff and share it with people. So I guess that's the old kind of formula that with democracy, the payoff, what, what you give up for democracy is quality. But quality is not democratic. So you've got to kind of say, well, you know, we've got a lot of lovely things that come out of all of this. But uh, at some point, it'd be nice for someone to make something awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, uh, I, <laughs> I, or, what's interesting is like listening to you talk. That's kind of how you. This is too soon. Are we into no, this too no, fast, I love man? It. No, get right in. Because I remember you speaking like this, and you were the first person I met that spoke like this, and you were the first person I met that went, "Well, let's just record it." And um, at the time, the barrier to entry for recording stuff was quite high in a financial level, and so we would just convince the music teachers that it was a good idea to let us take this stuff home over the weekend. Yeah. And you whipped out a four-track tape recorder, which I'll look it up online. Um, and I remember the first time I'd seen multi-track recording was I think downstairs. The Tascam. Yeah, downstairs at your place in um, Red Hill, Barton. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, this, okay, I get it now. And I suddenly things that I'd heard already like the Beatles, uh, Sgt. Peppers and things like that, oh, that's how they did it. And I started to reverse engineer a lot of stuff that I'd heard hearing layering of guitars and hearing, oh, there's three guitars in that speaker. There weren't three players. Whoa. Um, all that stuff started happening. But I uh, didn't really get to follow my music nerdery out of school, however you you did. Uh, not only were you an extraordinarily good guitar player, you were a very good singer and quite the composer and you landed yourself at the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, which sounds very hoity-toity. <laughs> and I tried three times to get in there and I still couldn't. So uh, I'm assuming that I was either really shit or they're very stringent or a bit of both. Oh, they were always really um, they're always really soft on singers because, of course, you, you're not really going to develop oh, – because I went there to be an opera singer and you're not really going to be a fully-fledged opera singer um, when you're 17. And so they usually kind of – they used to kind of bend the rules a bit. I think my, my entry level – my entry score was fine. Um, so, <laughs> so that was all the God given stuff as it were. Um, but I still had to do a rudiments of music class. It seems insane now. Anytime I get a student now who says they don't know how to notate and all that sort of stuff, I do mention that I had to do a year of rudiments class, which, um, I kind of am happy with now, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, like now for the folks who are listening, that's writing the notation. Yeah, basically learning more about writing notation. Which is essentially writing a different language that musicians yeah. can read. Yeah, and look, it was pretty interesting. But, of course, if you look at some of the great singers in the world, you know, I think Pavarotti didn't read music. There's a whole lot of wonderful, wonderful singers who didn't read music. And, and uh, in fact, someone said to me the other day that something like only, oh, God, I'm just going to make up a statistic, mm, okay? Do it. And I would encourage people to just Google the actual result themselves, mm. okay? So something like only 15% of music made is written down, hmm. which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, if you include people with guitars on beaches and stuff like that. And there was a lot of period of human uh, history where there wasn't music notated. Anyway, if you're going to go to a conservatorium, you've got to be able to notate, haven't you? Right. Um, because, Is that more of an idea of like years, the, the rules you've got to learn before you can break them, that kind of thing? Yes, but also, um, you know, written languages 
are a way of communicating ideas in a more specific way and really quickly and efficiently. So if I write it down, then hand it to you, I get much closer, much faster to what I want, what I'm imagining. Mm. Uh, And so that's why it's much more efficient. Um, And then, of course, you know, the flip side of that is, though, that that music is then fixed as a specific series of sound events and it's very rigid and so it's hard to improvise in that context, for example, which is why in um, jazz, for example, we have charts. The whole point of a chart is that it's specific enough but not so specific that it prevents people from being creative in the instant. Um, So the other reason why notation became so popular is because it becomes a commodity that you can sell. Mm. It's part of the source of the process of the delineation of roles in music. If you imagine music starting out as something which is something that you do socially with people where everybody thinks of themselves as composing performers – But then as people realise they can make money out of this, they start to want to own specific parts of the process. So you have a distributor and you have a composer and you have a performer and a conductor and a producer and all of these roles get separated out. And actually it's only really in the last 100 years that you've had all those things really completely delineated. Even if you go back to the period of um, of, uh, Stravinsky, you know, he used to compose and conduct and was a fantastic pianist. Even Shostakovich was a pianist composer. But for some reason nowadays we have this idea that you're either a composer or you're a producer or you're a um, performer, which is really weird. I just find it insane. <laughs> <laughs> like I, do, I find it really artificial and it is driven, it is capitalist kind of construct you know, so people can make a crust. And, of course, that's breaking down now. Yeah. Fundamentally breaking down. And what's happening as a result? Everybody's calling themselves a composer, producer, songwriter. You know, everybody writes their own stuff. But who's making money enough to live off? Is that the new That's why I teach, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm meeting more and more people who say, I'm specifically choosing not to make money off making my art. Because they see that, that that's another form of compromise and that actually there are much more efficient ways to, to fund your art making. Um, teaching is an excellent one. But teaching used to be looked down upon, right? But what about the kind of more than 2,000 years old tradition of Indian music where your guru is the great master and the teacher? So, you know, hopefully we get back to more of that sort of thing where people are exchanging ideas and, and sharing and making and doing and, and that sort of thing. How much did uh, you learn about your creative process or how did your creative process, you first start to explore what made things easy to come across, ideas easy to come across at the con? Well, it was partly because I was so crap at musicianship So I had a lot of ideas in my imagination and I had very little means to actually get them out into the physical world. So I was not very good at piano. I mean, I can kind of, I can improvise in a way that makes people think I can play piano, but I can't actually read and play a piece. Um, I was pretty good at guitar, but that's fairly limited if you're trying to write for orchestra. And um, 
because I was a singer, I always did things by ear. So I suppose nowadays I can hear a melody and write it down by hand. But when I was 17, I couldn't. And as I started to compose more and more, I kind of started to realise that I was hearing these vivid things, you know. I could do that bit. That was good. But in terms of getting them into the real world, like getting it played, it just felt so insurmountable. So what I started to do was started to research um, all sorts of ideas to do with creativity in order to try and work out how to get around those blockages and barriers because I was kind of just all intuitively at sea, you know, just scattergun, just trying stuff out and half of it would work and half of it wouldn't. Um, And so that kind of brought on this long process of finding clever ways to get around what were the traditions of composing. Like, for example, like I remember doing a, a lecture where in third year composition, they made us sit in a room with a pencil and a piece of paper and they said, write a string quartet, write as much music as a string quartet as you can in this period of time. Now, that comes from the kind of tradition of the idea of the hero genius composer who is this person who's supposed to be able to just sit with a piece of paper and their glorious imaginings just flow from their pencil. As if they were an author writing a novel. Yeah. And there have been geniuses who could do that. But there are a few things that are fundamentally wrong with that process. Number one, why would you suddenly have anything to write? You know, it's mistaking the act of putting the pencil to the paper with the start of the creative process in your mind. And in fact, you need a pre-compositional phase, if you like. You need to ruminate. You need to know what you're going to write. And writing it down so someone can play it should be just the bit you do at the end, not a process for having creative thoughts. This, just as a better example, if you think about using a piece of music software, um, a lot of the old school crap way of teaching music to secondary school kids is to do with saying, okay, class, we're going to do a composition task, open up the music software, choose instruments, go to bar one and compose, go. And of course, you just get universally crap, right? Uh, And the reason is that number one, the kids are choosing instruments at random, not because they're hearing it in their imagination, but because it's in front of them in the software. So they're basically choosing what the software wants them to choose, not what they're hearing. Then suddenly the software will have a preset of bringing up bars in 4-4, four beats in the bar, and you get a page and it's all laid out and everything's in bars. And so not surprisingly, they, they write music, which is all one bar long phrases. And so you get a piece that goes... Which is just off, you know. Okay, cute if you're in year seven, but if you're in year 12, you're in trouble. So the problem is that the act of notating is mistaken for the act of creating. But actually, if you just think of notating as a functional thing, that is, you're writing it down so someone else can reproduce what you were hearing in your head. Well, obviously, you want to put that as late as possible and find any other way you can to actually create stuff. So, number one, go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> of course, right? And in fact, there are neurobiological papers now that say that repetitive, boring tasks promote creativity, which is a scientific say of, way of saying when you're doing something boring, your brain entertains itself with music, of course. So basically, all you have to do, you, have, you can be a little bit clever than that. You just go for a walk and you think about what you want to express to someone else. What's the artistic idea you want to express because it's a communication. People forget about that as well. Um, and so you just pick anything because there's nothing new and you just say love, okay, unrequited love, I don't care, or unrequited love that becomes requited, whatever you like. And then you go for a walk, pick a couple of instruments that seem to suit that. So we could pick a viola and a violin, a bit masculine, feminine, you know, and go for a walk and you start to just let yourself generally imagine what are the sounds that are going to capture that. Are they going to be high or low or fast or slow? You know, my imagination now, I'm kind of thinking of the viola starting on its own with something just sweet and simple, you know, a few phrases. And then we hear the violin that just plays one little thing, almost like a memory or an echo. And then the viola goes on more and more. And then maybe the violin comes in more and more often until actually we feel they're present with us now. And there's a structure. There's a piece almost written. So if you do those sorts of phases, when you go to notate it, you have something useful to do. Um, so those sorts of tricks, they kind of came out of this idea of my desperation to get what was in my mind onto the page. And there was a lot of great literature around that time. You know, Edward de Bono in the early 90s was big and he had a lot of, I suppose the way he presented himself was a guy who was like blowing our minds with different paradigm shifts about how the way we used to think about things were really wrong. And he was right because uh, we were still coming out of that era of education where conceptual thinking was considered to be superior to experimenting and play. No one believes that anymore. Like in 20 years, that's totally changed. My, my kids in primary school, everything is about doing and thinking and reflecting and then do, you know, reflect, think, do, reflect, think, so that you're working in different modes. Um, so there's that. Then the other thing about creative process is if you're trying to compose a piece of music with software open that's visual, it's almost mathematical and analytical, you're trying to remember what the ranges of instruments are, what they sound like, you're worried that you're not very original so you've got voices in the back of your head, uh, you've got time pressures on you, the person next to you is clicking their pen, you know, if you're in a classroom. Um, so what you end up is too many tasks all stacked on top of each other all at the one time. So what I learned was the idea of flattening the composing process out. Um, so, for example, in a piece I did recently in Tasmania where I had to put lights and sound installation into a shed a disused shed and I had to capture something of the atmosphere of this old falling apart shed and people would come inside it. All I did, rather than thinking of like what structure should I do or how shall I reproduce the history of this place, I just thought of like one sound uh, and I had a viola player, that was a given. I just thought of one kind of shaking, vibrating, kind of um, dirty, dusty sound, right? I didn't go and get a bit of manuscript. I got the viola player to come over and we spent two hours 
just making dusty sounds like that. Um, you know, that's not trying to make a motive or a melody. It's just taking the time to just slow down and play around just with sounds. So that way what I'm doing is putting into my imagination a library of possibilities that I can then compose with later. Um, and out of that came this idea of this motorbike where we end up putting a motor. I bought a motor. I went up the road to J car and on the end of the bow stuck with just, you know, gaff, a motor on the end of it. And I got a door key so that as it spun around, it vibrated because the, the weight's uneven and just got a little bit of wire and a battery and put that under the hand of the bow. Cause you got your bow on one hand and the motor was at the other hand. Played that on the thing and suddenly this kind of amazing sound that became the entire sound that I, I used sounds just from that motorboat for the entire show. And it was just fantastic. If I'd gone to write on manuscript, I never would have invented that thing because I would have been jumping too quickly, too far forward in the process. So a few things, a few things there. Do you want to unpack any of that? Yeah, I do. There's a few things there that have completely blown my mind, all right? Number one being, because, I mean, a lot of people listening to this have never composed, nor will they ever compose a piece yeah. of music, right? But a lot of people listening will do something creative, where, whether it be writing something down or trying to find a creative solution to a problem in their house or negotiating something and they're looking for a creative solution. The idea that the writing down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Is the very, very last step just pretty much blew my mind. That, the idea that that way you wait, wait, wait for that part. You wait, you've got to do so much more beforehand. Um, you've got to fill your brain with all this possibility, which does actually reminds me then of this book that I read. I talk about it a bit, um, uh, A Technique for Producing Ideas, which is basically fill your brain full of everything you need to know. Now ask yourself the question, then fill your brain full of everything you think you need to answer that question, then go do something else. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you, your subconscious will work work it out. It'll make well because our brains are basically big connection making machines. That's that's at a physical and conceptual level what they are. So it's that's what that was one of the big Debono tricks is is to take a list of any disconnected things. In fact, intentionally make two lists of things that are on the face of it totally unrelated and your brain can't help but connect them in some way and often out of that comes innovation so the other thing that you uh you mentioned was um 
because I've experienced that opening up new music software and being excited about new music software or uh, uh, using a new camera, for example, and being confronted with a jillion features all at once or um, using a new uh, photo manipulation program or using uh, or even a, a writing program. Um, then I'm confronted with so many options that I think I'm choosing but I'm not choosing because they're ordered by the programmers in the, oh, this is what we think you'll use the most to what you'll think you use the least. So, uh, for example, in uh, Photoshop, the tools that they think will be the most commonly used are at the top of the toolbar. So you might never, ever get to the art history brush. You may have never, ever used that. But if it was up on the top left, you might use it. So that, that, that idea is also that I didn't, wasn't quite aware of how much my creative choices were being uh, constricted and guided by the very uh, tools that I was using to create. Um, and the other thing is of, of flattening the process. I have, it's, it's like that old uh, paralysis of choice when you stand in front of, um, uh, when you stand in front of the aisle at uh, the supermarket that has all the, I don't know, let's say peanut butter and there's 47 varieties of peanut butter. Well, there are in America. You end up leaving the store without any peanut butter because you can't make a decision. Um, yeah, it's like the most annoying question of the planet on the planet is what should we have for dinner? <laughs> Speaking of which, hi, honey. <laughs> what should we have for dinner tonight, baby? Sorry. This hi. is Damien. Hi. Damien, this is Audrey. Sorry. Lovely to meet you. You doing all right? How is Jim? Sweaty? Cool. How long until we have to be there? Okay, we can do that. That'll be sweet. So, yeah, to the idea that I have often, and this happened when I opened, there's a, a, a music program, program called Ableton, which I used to edit this show, actually. Yeah. And I've, I distinctly remember sitting down at Ableton. It was back when I had a bit more time on my hands. And I was like, I'm going to make a piece of music today. Doop -doop -doop -doop. Mm -hmm. Sit down, open up a template, choose a drum kit, choose a bass, choose a thing, choose a this, choose a plug-in, choose a compressor, choose a... Yeah. Ended up, you know, I think one day I listened back to all the files I created and it was like 27 different pieces that sounded exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> and probably sounded like someone else's stuff. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, the, that's the thing is these things are tools. Um, the same, exactly the same thing happens when people are good at improvising. And they often, because I teach an adult composing class, which sounds like I write teach how to write porn music doesn't it but <laughs> it's a class for composing where people can pay up front and come and have anybody can come and have a composition lesson right and um often it's people who are excellent players and musicians and they improvise and they're just a bit stuck they feel like they're stuck in a rut and so they've come to get a kind of fresh perspective on it and that's because when you spend let's say 20 years, 30 years learning the piano, your fingers have learnt certain physical patterns and your fingers will continue to find those same physical patterns because that's all your fingers know and it's being driven by the mechanics of the tool. So it's exactly the same thing. So the, the missing element there is pretty obvious. It's starting with an artistic idea of what you want to express. That's all. But the problem is... Who has one of those, you know? <laughs> you Mostly what you've got feels like someone else's artistic ideas and that usually is because they are. And really I, I think that the main difference even today between someone who's like a, 
a professional artist and a person who is just having a go at writing is what, you know, pretty good electronic dance music is that an artist is the person who takes the time out of busy life trying to earn money or get ahead or whatever. They're the ones who take time out to think about what they want to say. What is their personal individual idiosyncratic voice? Um, and that process takes, you know, more than a decade. <laughs> it can take a long time. Some people hit on it early. In some ways that's a curse, you know, because you kind of then you've had too much success too early, you know. But it's kind of this lifelong thing of, of let's say, for example, just observing things and then observing your own reaction to it. That's a very simple process for starting to discover who you are artistically and what you want to say. And then the act of making the artwork is a way of trying to elicit a creative response to a similar stimulus in the other person. I'll say, I'll say that another time because it's important. You're not trying to tell them about this wonderful experience I have because that's really crowding out your listener. What you're doing is you're presenting those same experiences so they can have a creative response to it. Because you're communicating ultimately. Well, let's say I'm looking at this storm front out here and then what I do is I write a piece of music which takes something of, it's not a piece called Stormfront, but aspects yeah, of the Joel, music. Did that yeah, <laughs> the aspects of the music are creating the dynamics, the colours, the movement of that in a way that then elicits a creative response as if the person was viewing something about that, you know. So one of the things that I really cracked this process of discovering your personal voice for me was um, I realised that everything I was doing to try and learn about art was researching music that had been written by other people. But it's not until I started to research outside of music that my personal voice emerged more and more. So I researched styles of architecture that I liked. Like I'd see a building and I'd go, I really like that, but I have no idea why. And so I researched until I did understand it. And then I would take those ideas and write a piece of music that used the same ideas. And lo and behold, you get a piece that sounds like no other piece of music that's ever been written. Um, I also remember having a lesson with one of the great Australian composers, Richard Meal, who only died um, a few years ago. But he was considered one of the great three composers who broke away from the English pastoralist tradition uh, mid-last century and did kind of extraordinary um, Australian music that was inspired by the Australian landscape instead of the English country landscape. And I had a lesson with him and he was fam famously kind of a charming but alternatively cranky kind of bastard. <laughs> and um, uh, But I, I loved him and... I went for a lesson and I said, he says, is there anything else you want to ask me? And I said, well, tell me about originality, you know, because I really want to write music that's not the same as what's been done before. And he said, oh, don't worry about originality. Don't worry about it. I said, oh, okay. He said, well, actually, you can worry about it, but just, just worry about what's your individual artistic voice. I said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, how do I get one of those? <laughs> I didn't really expect an answer. And he said, you have to cut out everything that's not you. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. Oh, that sounds really um, kind of rough. I said, okay, well, how do I do that? And he said, rigorous introspection. 
<laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm stuffed because he was right. Like next six months, I could, I could almost write nothing because everything I'd been using before was borrowed from someone else. Now, not everything I do now is wildly original, but there's always something that I'm investigating artistically that is like I feel really strongly that I'm into. And just as every human being on the planet has their own personality, therefore that means the art that you're making is like your personality. It, it is a, an echo of your personality and that's all it is. So in that sense, most people should be able to write something pretty quickly as long as they're just really brutally honest about who what their personality is. And this applies to music, it applies to writing, it applies to painting, it applies to drawing. Yeah, everything. But the thing is, it's not. it means that you might end up writing not the music you expected. So ah. if your ambition, if my ambition was to make a shed load of cash, right, right, doing what I do, then I would be deeply disappointed because I'm way too interested in kind of new, unexpected, eccentric things that are going to then uh, as, as by their very nature, take me out, out of the mainstream and therefore less commercial. And so you've got to be careful what you wish for, as they say. And another bloke who I used to teach com composing, his anxiety was the other way. He writes beautiful choral music that people love to sing, but he was always fearful that his music wasn't avant-garde enough. <laughs> and I just said, it's just bad luck. It's what you've got. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> So what he likes to listen to isn't what he's good at creating. Well, what he felt was going to make him a successful oh. art music composer. Oh. See, we get these conflicts between what we want to write and what we feel and wanting to be loved and respected. But in the end, you know, I always felt like when I wrote stuff that I knew that knew would be successful, I always felt like a shower afterwards. I always felt dirty, you know, like a fake, like I was in a relationship that was you know, a farce. <laughs> so what would you say to folks who, uh, and I'm sure musicians and composers have exactly the same issue, um, when they sit down in front of the keyboard or the pencil, the paper, the blank canvas and go and there's nothing. Yeah, I'd say go for a walk. <laughs> first you should know what you're going to do of course there is a process of drafting and sketching okay you know you do use your hands and writing and stuff in order to develop your ideas as a feedback loop but the first step can't be picking up the pencil the first step you have to have at least a general idea of what you want to say artistically okay so if i had advice for someone i would say first of all ignore your fears about what you're going to make because making is the process of getting better Okay, so you're not going to be a genius first go. No one is, and that's the myth of genius. So forget about that. Um, go for a walk and think about what it is that you observe in a, a aesthetics or life or relationships that you feel that makes you excited or passionate and that you want to find a way to communicate it. Okay? Um, and whatever your mind tells you, to a certain extent, you have to accept, even though you may have fears about it. So, you know, if you really, 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 really like um, playing with microprocessors, for example, like you really like that a lot, well, that's okay. Your audience is going to be very specific. It's not going to be everyone. That's okay. 
it's going to be fine. Because um, the thing is, you, you've got to have that kind of, especially the more avant-garde you're working, I feel like the more avant-garde, the more experimental the stuff is you want to do, the more honest it needs to be so that even if people don't understand it, they kind of understand it's come from a person who's authentic because the worst thing in the world is to come across a piece of art, make an effort to understand it and then discover you've been pranked by whoever made it, you know? That's kind of breaking that bond between the maker and the viewer. Yeah, I felt that a bit during when I was in Los Angeles about nine years ago, eight years ago, um, that film Exit Through the Gift Shop, the Banksy film. Oh, right, right. All that poster art, all that paste-up art was happening around yeah. the city and uh, the whole Mr. Brainwash thing. I'm I'm completely convinced Mr. Brainwash is Banksy's greatest ever piece. Oh, okay. I'm completely convinced that that man, that artist, that yeah. he and the entire scene created around him was Banksy's greatest ever work. Right. Um, yeah, so that that made me feel a bit shit but then I go, oh, my God, that's genius. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So just just on something you just said just then, um, first of all, I've got to say, this is freaking amazing what you're talking about today. Um, <laughs> That's good fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, you talked about sketching and drafting is yeah. important because y- it gives your ideas a chance to generate a feedback loop and iterate from there. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that? Yeah, well, um, I think I first got my most vivid experience of this when in – after year nine, where, you know, we both went to the same school, um, in year nine, we had a very, very inexperienced teacher in maths. And he basically gave up on the entire class except for six students that he taught around his desk. Hmm. And the rest of us played two up for stationery at the back of every class. And in that year nine class, I got 25% for maths. I'm pretty good at maths. Uh, and so in year 10, I got a tutor. And the first thing that my tutor said to me, he was a university guy, you know, he said, um, work on blank paper, not lined pages. Because blank paper, you can write, you know, around the side of it or out, if you need to do an extra little calculation over here and, and around the place. And you can kind of lay it out the way your brain needs it to be, not dictated by the lines on the page. And I just, that was my first vivid experience of, of a cognitive shift you know of a healthy creative process as opposed to one that's imposed on you that's unhealthy so sketching to me then becomes this kind of way of formalizing a rumination process so going for a walk is one example of that where you're trying to get your imagination to chew on something but sitting and doing what i i like to call graphic improvising which is where you get a whacking great piece of blank paper and you have got that, you've been for your walk, right? And maybe you've sung a couple of melodies into your iPhone, you know, and then at some point when you feel like you're kind of getting a handle on the piece, instead of going to notate, which is very slow, you get coloured pencils and in real time you draw squiggles and dots and shades and colours and lines and stuff, whatever you like, as quickly as possible on the page while hearing the music in your head. Um, and that does two things. Number one, it's, it's, you can hear the piece through in, uh, to a certain extent, uh, but when you do that, that's like improvising. It's not memorising, so you forget it unless you do something to capture it. So capturing on paper means that you then can look back at it and you remember what you heard. 
And then you, you can hear it through again and fill in more details. And then you can hear it through a third time and fill in more details. So it's this like this idea of the piece in your imagination coming into focus through a formalized process of rumination. And it, that's beautiful, isn't it? Because we kind of think of reflection as a really loose, dopey kind of hippie thing, but it's actually more like a martial art. It's something that you can, it's something beautiful that you can do, but in a very designed way. And so that's what drafting really should be, uh, is this idea of, of consolidating, playing around with ideas and making them more vivid and detailed in your imagination. So all of that I still don't call notating, right? That's just using drawing as a more healthy way of causing rumination. You, uh, you mentioned before about studying architecture yeah. to search out improvisation, I said search out inspiration and music inspired by the forms that you saw in those buildings. Um, one thing I really admire about you is that you go, you know what I see? I see, uh, I don't know, this object or these lasers or this something. I can't get them anywhere. I'm going to have to build it. I don't know how to build it. I'm going to have to learn how to build it. I'm going to have to, I don't know how to program it. I'm going to have to learn how to, okay. So this piece of music, I'm going to have to take seven steps back and then have yeah. another run up at it. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's no reason to kind of, just say, well, that's it, and not learn something new. And I, I, I'm never happier than when I'm learning a new thing. Uh, and I also think there's this idea of as soon as you're feeling comfortable, that's probably when your art's going to start to get a bit boring and bland and a bit too comfortable. Because you did that, didn't you? you? Like you made stuff. You had to learn how to code. You had to learn how to put stuff together. Well, look, this morning I was researching um, speakers because I'm just learning how to make line arrays, which is where you get, you know, multiple speakers in a row in order to get a very focused uh, audio um, when you're trying to project sound in a very focused way because I've got a, a, a light. Oh, yeah, basically. It's, <laughs> well, that is, that, uh, that is where that came from. Yeah. And I realised that buying, um, buying retail speakers was just not going to be right. They were not going to look right. They were going to cost too much. Uh, a lot of this is driven by the necessity to try and make things cheaply so you've got to learn it yourself. But also it's like getting real about it, like as if having – a couple of bodgy PV speakers up on the side of a of a light and sound art installation is is good enough, but people do they kind of tell themselves that's okay, but uh, it isn't, is it? Um, and but the other good thing about learning stuff like that is it requires you to work with other people. So I now have a mate, John Taylor, who's all the stuff that I can't work out, he can usually work out and vice versa. And between the two of us, this is what collaboration is. It's, it's going, to, going up to the electronics store and looking at things you have no idea and asking dumb questions of the guy um, who doesn't quite know how to answer it because he's never had to talk to someone who's making sound and light installations before either. So I guess that basically you've got to kind of be comfortable with looking like an idiot a lot of the time. But the benefit of that is that you learn you learn a lot of stuff. You kept interested. You're making healthy artwork. But also the artwork you make has a lot more depth to it, a lot more. It's more bespoke and more focused. Um, so, yeah, keeps you interested. Because I've – you don't just stop a composition, though. I've seen you do performance art. I've seen you uh, – I've performed with you at a particular uh, – 
um, we were in an art gallery, I think, yeah. and we blew up a PA. <laughs> uh, like on the top floor. Yeah, which time was that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. We were in the middle of uh, trying to play this fantastically complicated piece of music that you. Oh, made. wasn't it? Were we improvising on synths or something? Or? Something like that. I was playing. I was playing bass, uh-huh. and uh, the, the notation was. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Very yeah. graphical. Yeah. And um, the place was packed. There must have been 300 people in there. And uh, someone had a low field oscillator. It was going, whoa, 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 That's whoa, right. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then, and then there was silence. <laughs> everyone thought, was that part of the show? And then we heard the sound engineer, Simon Lang, go, oops. <laughs> yeah. And then someone in the audience said, well, at least we know it's live. <laughs> <laughs> It was a great moment. It was a great, it was a great, it was a great, great, great moment. So, I mean, ow, that was my elbow. Oh, that really hurt. I went body surfing with a kid the other day and. um, (laughs) Oh, I think it really hurts. I wait till I finish. I said, uh, (laughs) Um, I went body surfing with a kid the other day and I uh, I rolled out of a wave into a sandbank and I dislocated my right shoulder. Oh, great. Yeah. And, um. So just then I hit my elbow on that chair and my arm reacted and it moved in a way that it hasn't moved in about a month yes. and there was some pain. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you still, I mean, I know you also look for inspiration outside of the, um, outside of the, uh, the, the walking. Um, I, know you, I remember you and I used to body surf quite a bit. Yeah. Out, out in the ocean. Uh, do things like that help your creativity, getting out amongst nature? Look. You've got you know, now, so you can't really do it so much. When I was 27, of course, three hours of body surfing was crucial. <laughs> <laughs> About four days a week. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Nowadays, not so much. Yeah. No, I am much more efficient nowadays. Okay. Much less procrastinating. But you, Kids- do, you do search for uh, getting that physicality of, of being around and being surrounded by other things. Yeah, well, usually if I'm feeling stale, which, you know, it's a little bit like that right now. Like I, I kind of feeling like I've, there's a whole lot of processes that I have had in train in order to get me into this world of doing visuals with sound. Um, and I've been doing that for five years. And just the other day I thought, well, those are all coming to fruition, you know. Um, and so it's time to kind of start a new five to ten year process. Um, and honestly, my trick for that is to just randomly research something that I have no business researching, <laughs> and you always discover cool stuff. So, always, I love it. You know, like there, there is nothing that isn't going to because it, if you think about it this way, like the way we learn is the idea of clumping. So if you have something, and I a thought or. A, bunch of synapses in your brain already the best way to learn something new is to attach the new thing to that existing piece of information but that works in a random way as well so you could read anything like let's read tax law hey and there'll be something that'll jump out of that that'll attach to something already in your brain that'll give you an aha moment and that becomes fodder for another piece later on down the track, it may be in 10 years' time. So there's no such thing as, as um, a useless research path. In fact, I think the more random or the more outside of what you already know, the better. I love it. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up, but uh, final question. What yep. do you, how do you guide your kids in uh, the creative process? How do you help them be more creative? Well, I've been thinking about this recently. Um, 
first of all, I, I'm, I'm really wary of imposing my own kind of creative values on my children who are have very different personalities. Um, um, you know, one child just kind of seems to genetically have that sort of loose wonderment, um, almost belligerently so, you know, and actually probably the funniest sense of humour because she comes out with really unexpected kind of comments just out of nowhere, you know. Um, just non sequiturs that make you laugh, you know. So I think she's fine, you know. And and my son is very he's a, he's a mathematician really at heart. Um, and I'm kind of watching him, and he he's not quite as easy creatively. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it is time to teach some specific skills. But to him, it's not going to be like suddenly chucking him in a room full of things with plus glue, you know, because he'll just kind of go. No, actually, because <laughs> he doesn't have the mental apparatus uh-huh. as naturally. So I think it's just going to be to kind of methodically give him tools, you know, that he can say, oh, okay, yeah, I could think of it that way, that he can then kind of use in a more methodical way. Yeah, because yeah, I – and I'm glad you came over here today because um, I love the idea of blowing out of the water that all great ideas, everyone that created everything in this room had a great idea and that's why we're using these objects around us. But every one of those ideas is probably the, maybe the hundredth iteration uh, of every one of yeah. these objects and that it was a lot of work to get to that point. You just didn't yeah. come up with the idea of a fully formed flat screen television yeah. or a fully formed iPhone. It was yeah. tons and tons and tons of iteration. Yeah. Again and again and again and prototyping and prototyping and iterating and prototyping and iterating and feedbacking. Um, this, it's, it's a myth that suddenly incredible works of art turn up. But when we x-ray them, we realise, oh, no, there's seven different layers of paint behind this. Yeah, and, and, and the creative process, we also seem to think that it's linear, like it was inevitable that the drafts would lead to the flat-screen TV. But usually there's always a story of something unexpected and unusual happening. Yeah. You know, some insight that came because of, something weird happening, you know, someone's cat falling out of a window, you know, some, you know, even Einstein, you know, his insight was on the tram, just thinking, well, if I was travelling away from that clock at the speed of light, that clock would stop moving because it is light rays that are bringing that knowledge of its change to my eyes. And from there we get relativity. Isn't that a beautiful, simple just as simple, like relativity is not complex. It just came from like a simple kind of musing one day. Public transport. Yeah, sitting on a tram. Gives us so much. Uh, Damien, I'm going to go and watch a little girl graduate primary school. Um, Cheers. Thanks so much for coming around. That's fun, man. Cool really advice. fun. I love it. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Okay. Brilliant. Cool, man. And that was Damien Barbela. You can find him online, B-A-R-B-E-L-E-R.com. He's also on SoundCloud. Lovely bloke. Don't you love the thing? I, I was so blown away boy, when he said, you know, once you, by the time you sit down with a piece of paper and a pen or at your computer to write or whatever, that's the last step. It's not the first step. It's the last step. And I love that. Really reframing. Because otherwise I sit there at an empty page and I get frustrated. I sit there and go, I can't think of anything. Of course not, because I've just started. Go for a walk. I like it. I like it a lot. Hey, um, 
I hope you do go back and listen to those Brody O'Donnell episodes at osherginsburg.com, uh, episode 64 and episode 65. Between Damien and Brody, uh, you might get a bit of a rev up for the start of the year. Um, I did, uh, oh yeah, uh, since I saw you last, I got engaged. Uh, I got engaged and I also turned my phone off for two weeks. Um, it's pretty lovely being engaged. I'm very grateful to be engaged. Um, I think it's important as you get older as a man and if your partner's older as well, that you don't faff about. You either, you know, put a ring on it or you're brave enough to say, look, I'm not feeling it that much and you should go and find someone you can be happy with. And so I put a ring on it because I think she's awesome and I love being with her and she makes me laugh and she's funny and she's super smart and she's stunning and um, she's super kind. And I thought, you know what? I'd really like to be around that every day. It's pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty simple. She's super cool. I love her so much. Hey, um, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, you can always send me an email, sendosheremail at gmail.com. If you're in Brisbane, uh, pop it over to 105.3 in the morning and uh, let me know what you think or listen to the podcast. Let me know what you think. Send us your email at gmail.com. Guys, I'm, uh, one of my eyes is closing and the other one is starting to squint the opposite direction so I'm unable to focus on things around the room so I'm probably going to have to go to sleep. Uh, however, I will see you next week. Um, the podcast is staying. The podcast not going anywhere. I just needed a few weeks to get situated in Brisbane and, and focus on um, the job at hand because as much as I love this podcast, I love it to pieces and I wouldn't have this current radio job had I not done this podcast i don't get paid for this podcast and it takes a full day of work to put it together and i need it all hands on deck for this um uh, first week at uh, hit 105 so now that's out of the way we're back on so hey thanks so much for listening um have a great week i think it's important this week to just remember that it's the people that you don't know that you're kind to that make this world a better place you can be kind to people you know, that's easy. When you're kind to people you don't know, that's what makes the sun shine for everyone. So I hope you can throw a bit of that around today, this week, until I see you next time. I am lying in a very big bed, which is probably two beds pushed together, but I don't care. Um, I'm alone, which is a drag, because I'm kind of used to sleeping next to someone by now. But... Um, Thankfully, the curtains block out every ounce of sunlight, so I'm about to have the sleep of a thousand sleeps. But I wish you to sleep well and dream of beautiful things. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.